Toronto has watched as a slew of its music venues have closed their doors for good, but that hasn't stopped it from continuing to deepen its roots as a stomping ground for all kinds of talent. But what about even before those venues? Ever wonder about the burgeoning jazz scene in the 70s? Or how about the hip-hop scene in the 90s? How did people hear about all these underground shows before the internet? One word. Flyers. I'm Laura McInnes-Ray, and welcome to Beneath the Rhythm, an RX Music podcast. Today I'll be picking the brain of a seasoned stalwart in Toronto's music history, Rob Bowman. Rob's expansive career has earned him many accolades, including six Grammy nominations for his work as a writer and producer, and today he joins us in the studio promoting his most recent project, co-written with Daniel Tate, The Flyer Vault, 150 Years of Toronto Concert History. Morning, Rob. How's it going? Welcome to Beneath the Rhythm. Really excited to have you on today. Glad to be here. So let's start from the beginning here. Your co-author, Daniel Tate, rediscovered a trunk of flyers and finds, for lack of a better word, kind of a musical Narnia. Oh, yeah. And for Daniel, these flyers, a lot of them he had been putting up on posts, you know, working for various promoters for hip hop and electronic shows. So he had been at the show. So for him, it was nostalgia, you know, putting them up in the damn posts. It was nostalgia being at the show and how great it was. I mean, it was a real, real fun memory lane trip for him when he first rediscovered his trunk of flyers. So the next part of the story is he starts this Instagram account, calls it the Flyer Vault. Right. So we already Great names. We have this idea that it's this sort of time capsule and you never really know what you're going to find in there. And slowly it seemed like the attraction started to build online and we start realizing how many people were at these shows and how many of us haven't forgotten them. And how do we dig back these memories and sort of create this larger narrative of things we maybe hadn't known happened yet? I guess my question for you is a project like this bringing together... 150 years of Toronto concert live music history. Where do you start? (laughs) Well, at the same time that Daniel found his trunk of flyers and began his Instagram account and began posting initially hip hop electronica, he got interested in, well, what happened a little before this? What else could I find? And he found flyers and ads for earlier shows. And so Daniel's growing this account and then He keeps wanting to grow it further, and he's got the intellectual curiosity to want to know about music he doesn't know about, to want to know about music that came before him. And he gets interested in a group called Parliament Funkadelic, who, of course, have been sampled to death in the hip-hop world, George Clinton's wonderful, crazed ensemble. I've done three CDs with Parliament Funkadelic over the years, and Daniel heard about that, and somebody said, look, maybe he's going to have flyers for P-Funk when they lived in Toronto in 69 and 70, and they used to play on Young Street at the Lecoq door in the Hawk's Nest. Rob Bowman's going to have them. So Daniel gets a hold of me. I do not have those flyers. I had interviewed all those guys. I knew all about those performances and so on, but I'd never seen a flyer. But somehow, I can't remember, I think he brought it up. He said, you know, you want to go have a coffee? So we did. And we sit down, and he's an interesting guy, and he's full of energy. And he opens up his laptop, and I see this array of thousands of thumbnails of 
these flyers that he's collected. And along with the flyers are some earlier posters and some pre-posters advertisements from newspapers that he's been able to digitally lift. A flyer, put simply, is an advertisement, like a visual teaser encouraging you to participate. Perhaps it was a tall, handsome man pictured mid-strum advertising Elvis Presley at Maple Leaf Gardens in 1957. Or maybe it was a bold font stating Led Zeppelin at the Rock Pile on Young Street, August 18th, 1969. Advanced tickets, $4. Led Zeppelin. Let that one sink in for a minute. So he has some things that go back to the 1950s. He had some rock and roll shows in the 50s. So he had already done a fair bit of work going back. I had kept a handwritten list of every show I had seen since I started going to shows when I was 12. I'm a maniac, and I went to thousands of shows, often four a week when I was a teenager, easily, and often four a week as an adult, too. And I'd handwrite everyone, the opening band, the headliner, the date, the venue. First couple of years, I wrote little reviews of everyone. I gave that up. That was way too much work. And it's now several inches thick. And about five, maybe seven years ago, I finally started putting them into the computer, the current ones. I've never gone back, put all that paper to the computer, way too much work. Um, maybe one day if I ever retire, but I doubt I'll retire. They'll take me away when I'm 105 somewhere and throw me down the riverbank, and somebody else will have to do that. But I had also been intrigued by what happened before I was going to shows. And people a little older than me would tell me about things like cream at Massiel in June 1968, and I'd almost start crying. How could I have missed this? <laughs> It's painful to even think about it. Um, and so I'd sort of added to my list, I'm building a database of shows, and I began to pretty well have everything down for the 60s. And then I'm a university professor, and I helped write a textbook on popular music. I was the first person to ever teach popular music in Canada at the university level. And so I had Canadian content, of course, as part of that. So I needed to research how um, the Toronto newspapers looked at rock and roll in the 50s to see if it's the same as the American hysteria about it, you know, sending youth down into immoral territory and all this stuff. And Canadian media was just as nuts as the U.S. media. But so I'd already researched that and documented all low shows. And then I started, you know, just sort of two in the morning, I might start doing research for an hour or two and, you know, find a little isolated thing. So I started to build this larger database. And then when Daniel and I met, we thought originally of doing maybe an exhibit, and then the book idea came up, and so both of us kept going back and further and further and further, trying to find different things. Then once we signed our contract, then it became insane. Then it became every night, 10 at night to 3 in the morning, probably 25 emails or texts going back and forth between us, and it was mind-boggling the stuff we'd find. We wanted to do it 1850 to 2000. Daniel had one poster from 1851, which was just amazing. Jenny Lynn, first international tour ever in North America. As an ethnomusicologist, I knew all about the Jenny Lynn tour. It's famous in U.S. history. I didn't know she played Toronto. And she only played Toronto. She played three shows. And take this, 1851, we didn't have a, have a railroad connecting us to the U.S., 
She must have come by stagecoach. How do you book a show when you're sending letters by stagecoach? How do you even get it so they'll actually agree to a fee? You know they're going to show up held in a beautiful space um, called the Horticultural uh, Garden Pavilion. You know, down in Allen Gardens, there used to be a big 1,800-seat concert venue there. Long gone. I'd love to see what that looked like. So that's where we started. 1850, we had to cut it off somewhere. As I worked my way back, I kept finding things as far back as 1840. It was pretty mind-boggling, the stuff we found. It became love, obsession, and ridiculousness. So that's what what I find fascinating is is like you're saying is how you have to sort of create this timeline, decide what you're going to incorporate, decide where to make the cuts. You know, 1850, 2000, beyond 2000. Um, so it's ambitious as an Way as an understatement. And and not only is it ambitious, but you know we cover everything from blackface minstrel shows through jubilee and gospel performances. Jazz, blues, folk, country, 50s rock, classic rock, hard rock, punk, grunge, hardcore, hip-hop, electronica, Queen Street, festivals. There's chapters on every one of the things I just said. And we decided that's what we were going to do. It seemed like a foolish decision if you wanted to sell books because we, you know, we thought, you know, the hip hop kids—they're not going to be so interested in knowing about Hank Williams playing Mutual Arena in 1949, and the country fans aren't really going to care about hip hop, let alone will the jazz people give a damn about classic rock and blah 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 blah. But I don't really care. I mean, it, I, you know, I, th- I thought it was poor, probably a bad commercial decision, but we—no one else is going to do this. Daniel and I were well on the path between his visual collection and my database of information. And we thought, let's do it. Let's take it all away. And Laura, I have, my database is nuts now. It's insane. Only part of it can be in this book. So what I had to do for every chapter was, okay, this is all that happened, this massive amount of material in this particular genre. But what am I going to write about? Obviously, the earliest shows, highlights of shows, representative shows for different subgenres, but there's no way that I could ever include. I want you to talk about one right now. Okay, you go for <laughs> it. You go for it. Um, well, I I like that there's this segment where we're obviously talking about the first time avant-garde jazz is sort of making an oh, introduction. Yeah. That's cool. And it's interesting, I guess. To me, being a millennial, I'm looking at Yorkville as how I know Yorkville today. Right. And and I'm reading about this, and I'm thinking there's there was coffee coffee houses, and I'm sorry, uh, Helen Helen Wolf was playing. At where, the riverboat in Yorkville, yeah. And I'm you know I'm walking around Yorkville now, and that's you know full of high high end restaurants and boutiques and and you know lovely Christmas lights in the season and and whatnot. And I'm thinking. How do I get to see Howlin' Wolf here? <laughs> Is that technology around yet? Well, if we ever get the time machine, I'll take you there. <laughs> it's 1963. You're on the corner of Yorkville Avenue and Avenue Road, home to the counterculture movement in the 1960s. Coffee houses and clubs lined the streets, and Yorkville welcomed the art scenes with open arms, quickly becoming a haven for singer-songwriters. Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Gordon Lightfoot, these are just some of the household names that were getting their feet wet. At this time, the legal drinking age was 21. 
but young people flocked, hung out in coffee houses, and saw live music. The Riverboat, Penny Farthings, The Purple Onion, these are just some of the venues that colored the thriving arts and music scene in the 1960s. It was sex, it was drugs, it was rock and roll. Uh, I got. I was lucky. I saw Wolf a lot, but I saw him on Young Street at the Colonial Tavern because the Colonial was real special. He had a downstairs and an upstairs. You had to be 21 to get in downstairs. That was a drinking age then. And I started going there when I was 13 years old because upstairs was a restaurant license and any, any age could go there. And the great thing about it is they had this massive cutout up, uh, upstairs. So you could sit in the bel- ra- seats around the rail of the balcony and you're right above the stage, see and hear everything. And they were bringing in Muddy Waters. They were bringing Howlin' Wolf, T-Bone Walker, John Lee Hooker, B.B. King, plus jazz guys like Ornette Coleman, Roseanne Roland Kirk, Miles Davis, Charles Mingus. I saw all these people when I was 13 and 14. And when I started working for magazines when I was 15, my very first interview was, was at the Colonial was T-Bone Walker, the guy in 1949 who worked Stormy Monday, you know, covered by the Allman Brothers and all sorts of other people. I mean, this was like, what fantasy land is this? Toronto was so lucky. And up in Yorkville, they had this incredible array of coffee shops where there were mostly, you know, white singer, songwriter, folk musicians. Joni Mitchell and Neil Young played clubs there before they became huge. But they also brought in blues people like Helen Wolf, Buddy Guy and Junior Wells, Sonny Terry, Brownie McKee. This city was a hotbed of music. And what, that, what if I learned one thing from this book? We had, of course, a great electronica scene. We had a massive hip-hop scene. But we had an incredible jubilee scene in the 1870s and 1880s. This was always a musical mad city that always was going to support live music. And as the gateway to Canada, everybody came here. We're, you know, it's like New York, L.A., Toronto. Those are the three most important cities if you want to tour in North America. I mean, ge- yeah, geographically, we are quite lucky to be that close to New York. <laughs> well, we're also lucky as the gateway to Canada. And now we've become the third largest city. We're bigger in Chicago now. But even when we weren't, we got more than we might have if we'd been a similar size city in the U.S. Because this was, you know, Montreal's French-speaking. Toronto's an English-speaking city. Was the gateway to Canada. And, you know, by now, one-third of, Tro- of Canada's population lives within a few hours' drive of Toronto. I mean, that's kind of a w- weird thing too, right? You can hit a third of the country just by coming to Toronto. When we look at something like this where you decided you thought about maybe doing it as a live exhibit and then you decided on a medium like a book. So we have we have the visual elements of the flyers and we're able to detail such detailed recounts of the people who've, who were at the show or maybe they met at the show or saw Led Zeppelin before they actually became Led Zeppelin and whatnot. So it's it's interesting where when I think of the live music scene that I know today and how far it's come in terms of capturing things candidly, where it's using technology or talking about it or posting it online, it's still creating a conversation. And so this was obviously such an, a beautiful way to have this conversation just out there and sort of lay it out um, and sort of start that conversation again. Like you said, how there was a jubilee scene, how many people do you know could could talk about that right off the top of their head they may not know 
They may not know about the inspiration Getty Lee took from seeing a, a Zeppelin show. Right, right, right. Particularly enjoyed that chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Getty's, Getty's uh, account of what he did to go to that show, you know, pawning a typewriter to be given by his grandmother and, you know, having to figure out how to get it back after the show, but he needed the money for the tickets. It's great. His passion, the same passion that every generation has for different kinds of music. And I love that passion, no matter what age the people are. And you have, there also is this element of, of overlap where you were able to marry um, this older history and match it to the current and sort of what's the cultural context surrounding this now. And when you walk into the horseshoe and it's this sort of hallowed horseshoe tavern on Queen Street, it's this sort of hallowed place. And, you know, we learn about the Garys and their promotional run. Unbelievable run. Yeah, the Garys were saints. I'm waiting for that book too. <laughs> the Garys, I've told Gary he needs to write a book. The Garys changed the cultural landscape of this city. Here's an excerpt from The Last Pogo, a film by the Toronto-based filmmaker Colin Brunton which captures the last punk show at the Horseshoe Tavern in 1978. The two Garys booked most of the punk bands in Toronto. A lot of bands from England and a lot of local acts. Um, they booked him into the Horseshoe for nine months, and during that time, that was probably the best club Toronto had for punk rock. Um, the owners kicked them out after nine months, and to sort of show what the best of the Toronto punk rock was, they had the last pogo. It was great. It was representative of the best bands in Toronto.
Topps, Gary Topp and Gary Cormier. And uh, they started, well, first of all, Gary Topp at the Roxy Theater, the original 99-cent Roxy down at uh, Greenwood in Danforth, and it was the most surreal theater. He would take a film and partway through it, have another film come in. Uh, everybody there was high every night. It was just, it was totally of its time and nuts. I was going down there when I was in high school. And then he uh, got the New Yorker Theater on Young Street and began to bring shows there, including the very first punk show in the city, the Ramones, in September 76. Uh, and then in 78, for nine months, the Garys ran the Horseshoe till the owners of the Horseshoe felt that punks weren't buying enough beer. So they got kicked out of there, and then they got the Edge New Year's Eve, 78, and they had the Edge from 79, 80, and into June 89, and it was the most astonishing space and place. I remember seeing the cramps, and it would end with Lux Interior completely nude because the place was really hot. He'd taken off all his clothes. He's sweating to death. He's got a microphone in his mouth, and he's hanging from the pipes above the stage. Now, if that isn't rock and roll, I don't know what is. I remember. Alive. <laughs> oh, my God, it was amazing. I remember seeing Dave Thomas of Per Ubu doing the encore song Non-Alignment Pack and Dave whacking an anvil with a hammer for percussion. Have you ever seen an anvil and hammer on stage? I've never seen it before after that moment. Or the slits when they came. Uh, this all female um, punk band and Airy Up with her head like a pineapple with this astonishing voice she used to use. These were magical performances. Well, they used to say they booked from their record collections. Whether it would make money or not, well, we'll see, but at least they get to see all their heroes in the record collections, and they really changed the culture of the city. So my question for you now, I think, would be, having seen such legendary shows, when you're seeing live music today, there must be sort of a feeling of, when will I see the next big thing, or how can this top something that I have seen and I keep, I keep in my memory and yeah, I don't think I need to ever see another show again that's going to top that one. <laughs> I have never thought that because I'm a junkie. I love music and I love live music. But I must say, Laura, that I've seen a few thousand shows and I've seen unbelievable. I've been to seven Rolling Stones club shows. Most human beings haven't been to one and would die to see them in a small club. I've been to seven of them. I've been a very, very lucky human being. I've seen lots and lots and lots of impossible to get in shows, not just in Toronto, but all over the world. I mean, now I regularly, I was in New York the other week seeing Bob Dylan. Um, I'm reg I regularly am flying to shows in, in all over North America and stuff. I don't see him in Toronto, but um, there's still this thing that's vital and exciting about when a band connects with an audience, finds that groove, and the magic comes down on that room, whether it's a 300-seat club or 20,000 people at uh, their Canada Center. It's now got that stupid new name, that Scotiabank Arena. I, I hate whenever they change those names. But anyway, uh, whatever the size, magic can happen. And I must say, uh, having seen as much as I have, I find it hard to tolerate merely good music. I need it to be great. I mean, my my levels of excitement, it's, the, the bar is high. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, a, it's an expectation thing as well to manage. Yeah, yeah. And so I often, I often am disappointed. I think, oh, it's fine, but it's nothing special. But then 
you still hit those special things. And it's like, whoa, this is amazing. This is what life is all about. This, You know, when I was seven and I first got excited about music, it's because it made me feel more alive than anything else I'd ever experienced. The world was suddenly brighter. It's like, you know, the lights had got in the sky brighter. Everything was better. And it still could do that. Walking now through the streets of Toronto, down streets I've come to recognize, I understand them with a stronger sense of appreciation. There's weight underneath all of these stories. Here in Toronto lies a vault of historic music happenings. Music is an intangible thing, something that is intrinsic to human life. It is this completely mysterious art form that never gets phased out by new technology. It remains ephemeral, relevant, and ever-changing. We are all connected by it and it is completely fused into our lives. So what would what would you say um, if you're let's say 10-year-old self having discovered music is going to be your thing. It's going to, you don't, you're not sure in what capacity, but you know that you're going to be involved in it. You know that you're going to be at it, inside it, all over it. What, what do you think your 10-year-old self would think now that the, now looking and reflecting on you having just written? So my real 10-year-old self from many years ago, I would think that he would be beaming ear to ear would sort of be, I can't believe this is going to happen in my life, but this is the most amazing thing that could happen. I mean, I've grown up and worked with my heroes. I've worked with Bob Marley. I've worked with the Rolling Stones. I've worked with Bob Dylan. I wrote Prince of Steph when he's inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I worked with P-Funk. Uh, I did a box set with Lou Reed. I mean, literally, you know, Chuck D and uh, Public Enemy and I are close friends. Literally, I have worked with the majority of my heroes. And um, I don't know. I mean, it's like a dream come through. And th this book was an incredible amount of fun. And Daniel Tate was an amazing person to work with. And in some ways, it's a gift to Toronto. I don't mean that in a too pretentious manner. I mean, we did it out of self-interest, not to make money. We're never going to make much money on this book. But this book is is does document 160 years, really, 1840 to 2000, of Toronto concert history in a way that probably, well, no one had ever done, and I don't know if ever, anyone would have ever done it. We have some great books on Toronto punk, Toronto hardcore, Toronto hip-hop, but nobody's tried to do a book that covered, if you will, the waterfront. And I doubt anybody would have written about all the early stuff if it wasn't in the context of a book like this. And the response we're getting from people is amazing. People, you know, and it's it's really two things. Oh, I was at that show, and it brings back such great memories. I forgot about that show. Or the other one is, oh my God, they played here. How could I have missed that? Sometimes it happened while people were alive, and they just didn't realize it happened. And then others, it was before their time, and they just go, oh my God, I really would have killed to have been there. But either way. It, it provokes emotions and makes them think they have a better sense of Toronto. It is a love letter to Toronto and a love letter to concerts 
And you know what? I'm born and bred in Toronto, and I've been to a whole lot of concerts. So in some ways, this is a love letter to what I do with my life and what a lot of other Torontonians have done with their life. thanks goes out to Rob Bowman for joining us on today's episode. Rob Bowman is the co-author of The Flyer Vault, 150 Years of Toronto Music History, co-written and created by Daniel Tate. Go and grab yourself a copy. listening to Beneath the Rhythm, an RX Music podcast made for and by music lovers. This program was produced by Craig Clemens, Regan McDonnell, and Tony Young. Images by Andre Grant, social media by Roomjoom Jaga, and I'm your host, Laura McInnes-Ray. Thanks for listening. <laughs>